Uh, let me go ahead and read our passage for today. Uh, we're going to re- read Galatians chapter 3, verses 23, all the way through Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. So Galatians chapter 3, 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. Um, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, bring it up, read along with me. This is God's word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Um, This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I thank you that uh, you look on us and you have deep compassion and love before we did anything to deserve it. And you are so gracious and good. You have such an overwhelming joy and self-sufficiency and love Um, in the Trinity, that you want to welcome us into your dance, into your community of joy and fullness. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would be breaking down our misconceptions of you, that you would be revealing yourself as you are, not as we might think you are, Um, that you are such an incredible, loving, gracious being, uh, that you sent your Son, that you sent your Spirit, that you long for us to experience joy and peace knowing that we are your beloved children. And so I pray, Father, you would release uh, your joy and your assurance in our hearts as we meditate on your word, and this would set us free. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in the book of Galatians, uh, up until this point, we've been basically following Paul's lead and looking at things from a negative perspective. So in the book of Galatians, Paul was addressing a specific situation in the church where Jewish Christians, um, or how would I say this? The Galatians were predominantly pagan Christians. So they were coming from a pagan, non-Jewish background, and then they became baptized, they believed in Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, both Jew and Gentile had understood that they were no longer under the law. So Gentile Christians did not have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow the ceremonial law. And we talked about this a while back where I said, um, uh, I mean, Joshua's not here, but uh, Joshua was not wearing mixed fiber clothing. And so therefore, Joshua was allowed to attend our church service. But if Joseph is wearing mixed fibers, you gotta get out. Or, you know, Saturday, did anyone have shellfish? Anything? Get out, the door is there, right? So that was the law. That was, if you, um, if you fail to keep this law, you are ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean and therefore cannot have access to God. And so what was happening was, The Jews and the Gentiles, they understood based on God speaking to Peter, based on Peter preaching and teaching this new understanding of the law, that they were no longer under the law. But then there were influential Jew uh, 
Judaizers, what Paul calls Judaizers, people who came back into the church and they were saying, even though you're a Gentile, even though you weren't raised in the Jewish tradition or culture or faith, you have to adopt their cultural practices. And so Dan talked about, um, he had us consider what cultural practices we take into the church that we conflate with the teaching of God, right? Um, so let's see, how many, um, let's see, how many, like, who do I want to upset here? Let me upset a few people. Okay, so for example, are you able to distinguish between your cultural expectations of what someone should wear in church and what scripture says about what someone should wear in church? Did you hear me? We all choose different practices, right? We have a culture where, for, for instance, um, in the African-American church, you wear your Sunday best, right? And it's a way to show respect for God. And so uh, you, you dress up in suits, you wear big hats, like it's really awesome, it's really great. When I visit African-American churches in Memphis and like New Orleans, like it's really, really cool. But does that mean that you look down upon or think that people who don't have those same cultural practices of dress are doing something wrong or doing something bad. You get me? There's something really good about the desire to show respect to God through dressing up. It's saying, I wanna take God seriously. I wanna show that he is important to me. Therefore, I'm gonna dress in this way. But are you conflating that with the law of God? Another example, we're reading through the book of 1 Timothy in adult Sunday school, and there's a passage where it talks about Women dressing modestly. Let me, let, so let me irritate a bunch of you. Like, let me irritate a bunch of you. Uh, what that passage is saying, what many of us do, is we take our conception of modesty, which, you know, often it's like, your dress is too short, or like, whatever, like, whatever. It's like all the old people always try to control what the young people wear. And they use this Bible passage to say, you can't wear that. What the original intent of the passage was, is actually something that both adults and children are guilty of. Modesty had to do with basically flaunting your wealth and showing your social status through clothing. So let me irritate some more people. Um, if you're judging people for dressing in a way that's like sexually immodest, this is like the language that old people will use. Um, if, if, you're, if you're a kid who feels like you're judged by the old people for what you wear, um, and they use this Bible passage, what you should tell them is, you are dressing immodestly because you're wearing like Gucci, you know? You're wearing, I'm serious, like you, you, you show your wealth by your clothing and there's a subtle condescension or there's a status play that you're making because you're dressing in a certain way. I'm not saying everyone who dresses in that way is trying to do that, but what Paul is saying is, is be careful that your cultural expectations are not, um, you're not conflating them with what, this, what Scripture says, what God says, which is more an uh, a matter of the heart. And so Paul is, Paul is completely going against these types of taking cultural expectations and turning them into God's law. He's completely against that because those things um, actually create barriers and prejudices between different groups of people. And so our church is a really interesting example of this, where um, we, are, uh, we are a Chinese immigrant church, but we have a Mandarin congregation and an English congregation. And by our nature as being um, an immigrant church, I, you might not know this, but I don't speak Mandarin. And other people may not speak English. And we are two different cultures, but what Uncle Rupert says over and over again is we are one family. And that's Paul's argument where he's saying what matters is not the way we look, it's not our ethnicity, it's not even our cultural values, it is the fact that we are joined to Christ, that we're in Christ justified by faith, not by what we do. And so this is really tragic. This is why Paul gets so angry and this is why I get like frustrated um, I'm not saying I'm frustrated with like our church, but when I see other churches or, you know, even maybe I do this some of the times too, um, but I just, we've been speaking from a generally negative perspective where we're saying this type of church is bad. This type of church is distorting the gospel. This type of thinking leads to slavery and a misapprehension of who God is. In this passage, 
We are going to continue with some of the negative, but what I'm really excited about is we're going to talk about where God is going. What it, it's the experience, the status, the joy. So do you, know what, do, do you kind of know what I'm saying? I'm arguing against something. We're arguing against legalism. Um, we're arguing against a distortion of the gospel where the gospel is primarily in terms of following rules to win God's acceptance. But now we're arguing this is where God is leading. This is God's intention behind saving us and justifying us. And it's so incredibly good. Um, there's a J.I. Packer quote. If any of you guys are um, budding theologians, even if you're not, if we're, we're all theologians, actually. We all have a view of God. But one book that's been very helpful to me when it comes to this truth, the concept of adoption, which we'll talk about for the rest of the sermon, there's one book that's been extraordinarily helpful to me. Um, it's a book by an uh, uh, English guy named J.I. Packer um, called Knowing God. And in this book, Knowing God, his chapter on adoption is one of my favorite chapters in any written book. It seriously is. The quotes that he has in here um, so well capture the experience of truly understanding who God is and what it means to be a Christian. And so I'm going to read a few of his quotes as we get, um, we get through here. So let me, let me give you a few of these ones. This is J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. You get me? This is really interesting because when I, w when I, was, I was making a, an argument, which may have been to some degree a straw man, um, earlier on where I'm saying the first thing you think about when you think about Christianity, if you're anything like the society at large, um, you think generally, okay, I'm not sure everyone, but many people think about Christianity in America as being uh, related to honestly conservative Republican politics. Um, Christianity is related to uh, certain moral values and your position related to certain things, uh, homosexuality, abortion, whatever it might be. Um, you think about Christianity as keeping rules. These are the primary things you think about when you think about Christianity. I'm not sure all of you do that. I mean, I'm hoping if you are, have spent time in our church, you would see how it's not about that. Um, but, the, okay, it's, it's tricky. But l let me just say, the controlling interest, if you want to understand how well someone really understands Christianity, find out what you think about being a child of God. How much do you make of this truth that God is your heavenly father. Um, let me keep going. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Um, if you don't understand this, and what I've been arguing is to misapprehend who God is, to follow into the trap, to fall into the trap that the Galatian church was falling into, um, is, means that you will experience God as a slave master. And to understand God as your father means you will experience freedom. That's how big of a difference it is. And that's why Paul is so animated. He's saying, you understood, you experienced the freedom of being a child of God, and then you're going back into the law. And that's enslaving you again. Why are you returning to this slavery? And we all know what that's like. And we'll talk about what that experience of slavery is like. Um, Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And so if that's true, if your view of God um, and your understanding of him uh, is not controlled by this understanding and experience of God adopting you, then you're missing something. So let's look at some of the qualities that characterize a slave mentality, the, the, the spirit of slavery, people who relate to God as a, a lawgiver or whatever it might be. And where I'm getting this is, if you notice, Paul is using an analogy in this text where he's saying the law of God in the Old Testament has certain functions, but the law of God is like a guardian or you could think of the law of God as a babysitter. Um, and he is referring to a specific Roman practice of adoption that we're going to talk about. Um, okay, I'll just talk about it. 
So uh, in, for Paul's culture, um, adoption was a practice that's kind of different than ours. When we think about adoption, we typically think of like, there's like a, a really young baby who is an orphan. And so, you know, maybe there's like a baby from China and, you know, no one, no one is taking care of this baby, so let's adopt this baby, bring it to the United States. And, you know, our former pastor, Peter Fong, he adopted a young daughter from China who's Emma, and she's like, she's like a young woman now. It's really crazy. But that's what we typically think of as adoption. This is something different. Roman adoption was basically there is a wealthy landowner, so there's a rich guy, and for whatever reason, he has no male heirs, Okay. So maybe when he had kids, he only had daughters. And in this culture, daughters could not become landowners. In Roman culture, daughters could not become landowners. Or maybe his sons all died in a war, right? Uh, and so because of that, there is no one to inherit his estate. And so it's really, really interesting. What he would do is sometimes he would choose one of his most trusted servants who's been, uh, he would choose one of his servants and he would adopt him where because of this master's choice, he is transforming the nature of their relationship from a master-servant relationship to a father-son relationship. And this was such a big deal because when he adopted this slave, this former slave, all of a sudden, everyone would have to treat this former slave as a real Roman citizen. He would have all of the rights of a full citizen. He would inherit all of the man's property when the man passes away. And so his life would be absolutely transformed by being adopted, being adopted. Do you see why Paul is using this analogy? And do you see how powerful this analogy is? If we think about Christianity as primarily in terms of God needs more servants, and to be a good Christian means you do a lot of stuff for God, you're missing the beauty and the riches and the joy of God's intention in the gospel. God's intention in the gospel is not to get a bunch of servants who can do stuff for him. He wants something way more than that. He wants to us to become part of his family, and he wants us to be, again, it's not like little babies who depend on God as a father, but he wants us to be mature adults who are God's children. So, like, again, in the, um, in, the, in the example of the Roman heir, the Roman landowner, the idea is you want someone to take over the family business. You want someone who's trustworthy, someone who's on the same page as you, someone who has the same values and desires as you. And so that's what it means to be adopted, where when you become adopted as a believer, it's not that you're, like, a baby and you're, like, don't... It's, like, it's, the, the person who's a baby is the person, like my son, who constantly needs someone telling them what not, uh, what not to do, right? And, and that's the image. In, in the Roman culture, there are two really big moments in a young boy's life. At the age of 14, before they were 14, uh, they would be watched very carefully. And then when they were 14, there was kind of like a, a passage of, um, a rite of passage where they would adopt more responsibility and then even after that, they would still have tutors or managers or whatever it might be until the age of 25. And then by the time they're 25, they would have full uh, control of their, like they would be treated as an adult. They, they would be tr expected to be responsible, et cetera, whatever that might be, right? Um, and so the, let, let's think about the difference between when he's under his guardians and when he's a full adult. What's the difference? Um, the difference is, when Toby is, you know, how old he is, 16 months old, um, I, I have to constantly tell him, no, right? Don't play with the oven. Don't play with the stove. Don't shove sharp objects into your mouth. Don't, like, don't shove 1,000 blackberries into your mouth at the same time, or else you're going to choke, you crazy baby. And he's just like, nom, nom, nom. That, that's what it's like uh, when the child is not able to handle or respond to life. And so that's a really interesting analogy. The role of the law in the Old Testament, this completely changes the way you read the Hebrew scripture. The role of the law was never, and Paul says this, was never to save people. It wasn't. The law was a guardian. The law was, and this is what theologians typically talk about when they talk about the purpose of the law. The, the role of the law was, number one, 
to reveal sinfulness. So if you, if you read the like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, etc., what you realize is it would have been a constant reminder. Everything that they would have done would have been a constant reminder of their need for atoning sacrifice. They would have made sin offerings where they say, I have not been able to keep the law perfectly because God is so good and so holy and I have not loved my son. I, Daniel, have not loved my son the way I should. Therefore, I will make this offering to atone for my sin. And so it would have been this reminder, I am sinful. I am desperately in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. And then not only that, I make the sin offering, right? But not only that, there have to be priests and high priests. And do you know what they would do? They would make a sin offering for my sin offering, where my sin offering is not enough. It's not holy. It's imperfect. And so I need a representative or a mediator to sanctify my sin offering by them making a sin offering. And so it's this system where over and over again, we come to this realization, the, the, you know, like the Day of Atonement, the different feasts, the Passover, etc. It's all a reminder that we are sinful. We, we are imper- and, and honestly, this is something that you all already know. You all already know this, right? But then what Christians can do, what Gal- the Galatians do, is they say, this is, what the fun- this is still the function of the law to reveal sin, but then the, the law, if you keep it good enough, you will actually save yourself and make yourself acceptable before God. But that is not the function of the law. The law reveals our sinfulness, and only faith can make us justified and acceptable before God. Another role that the law has, um, people talk about how the law restrains evil, where if it's like with Toby, right? Let me tell you this principle. You shall not touch the oven. You shall not run into the street. It keeps bad stuff from happening. And so when you look at the Old Testament law, you can actually see so much wisdom, practical wisdom, in uh, the prohibitions that God gives for his people. It keeps them from harming each other and ruining families, like the prohibition against adultery. What's the idea? If you commit adultery, you will make a train wreck of your life and the lives of those around you, right? You restrain evil. What else? The role of the law um, is temporary and limited, where Paul says here, before, when faith came, we were held captive under the law. But then this was all leading to the promise of Jesus, where another role of the law is the law bears witness about Jesus. So when you look at the sacrifices, when you look at the cleanliness laws, the purpose is not for us as New Testament Christians to say, I need to follow all of those prohibitions like the prohibition against tattoos. This is a really big one for some people. You can't get tattoos. As New Testament Christians, that is not how we see the law. Um, and let me see if I can actually, uh, let me see if I can actually unpack real quick a different way of interpreting the prohibition against tattoos that makes sense of the New Testament. So the prohibition against tattoos was related to pagan religion. So if you, when you put a tattoo on yourself, you're saying, I belong to XYZ God, right? And we do that now, right? Where it's like LeBron James, you know, like he makes a tattoo and it's like, ah, king or whatever. And it's like, that's a tattoo to himself saying how awesome he is, right? So the prohibition against tattoos was in the context of saying, uh, God is our God and we will have no other gods before him. And so therefore, if you're putting a tattoo on your body, it would have been saying that, you are worshiping this other god. And maybe this tattoo would give you some kind of ritual power or whatever it might be. In the New Testament, it says in 1 Corinthians, uh, your body is bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Where what Jesus is, or what Paul is saying in the New Testament is just as in the same way to glorify God with your body was to avoid giving your body to other gods, in the New Testament, because of what Jesus did for you, You glorify God by honoring him with how you live your life. You get me? It's the spirit behind the law manifested in the New Testament through something that is not restrictive as much as it is a new attitude about how to live. So what does it look like to glorify God with your body? I'm going to use my body to love and serve other people. I'm going to use my body to bow down and praise God, and I'm going to sing to him, right? I'm going to give my material possessions to love people. 
This is a total new understanding of the law that's completely different. Um, but is this how we typically understand the Hebrew scripture? No, because, uh, I, I mean, let me give you an example. Again, I'm, I'm like, I didn't expect to like offend everyone, when, <laughs> but let me, let me offend some people. Or let me, let me give you at least like an example of a controversial, like, uh, what do you call it? A, a controversy that comes from your misunderstanding of the law. Um, so for the tattoo one, let me ask you this question. Actually, I'm not even going to tell you what to think. Let me ask you this question. If you are a parent of a child who wants to get a tattoo with a Bible verse, is that right or wrong? What do you think? What's, now, let me ask you another question. What is your reasoning behind why that's right or wrong? Because let me tell you the reasoning I typically hear. The Bible says no tattoos. But did they understand the context for that? Did they understand what Paul is saying, where the, the law was a guardian to prevent you from doing things that were harmful to you, but now that you are adopted, it's different. You're not under the law anymore in the same way. You guys get me? This is really interesting, and this totally transforms so many topics related to this. And so what I would say is, Whenever a church or Christian group, or you could even say like a cult, when they divorce these principles from a relationship with God, and you, they're so focused on the external behaviors, they got it wrong. Because there should always be a marriage between these inner desires and your external behavior, okay? Um, but man, I'm, I'm just, I'm like just introducing it. We got to get, we got to get going. Um, so let me talk to you about, this is, I've been talking about the negative, what we avoid, what we go with. Let me talk to you about the beauty and goodness of who God is and what he's like as a father. So again, um, I, I've been summarizing kind of verses one through three, and he says in verse three, in the same way, the analogy of the child who is an heir to his master's estate or the servant who has not yet inherited in the same way we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We're going to talk more about this in our next sermon. But in this context, what I believe Paul is saying is, before we were under the guardianship of the law, but now we no longer are. In verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so this is a trajectory. What was God's intention behind giving the law? To restrain evil, to reveal sin, to make us realize our need for a savior. And then when Jesus came, it's the difference between being a minor to being an adult, you know? When you're a minor, you don't have full privileges. You can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't vote, you can't drive, whatever it might be. But then when you become an adult, all of a sudden you have all of these privileges, right? The restrictions, the limitations are taken off and now you have the freedom to make choices for yourself and the freedom to experience the consequences as a full adult, right? And in the same way, this is God's intention. He doesn't want us to be like immature. If, if you're, and this is really interesting, I would say if you primarily uh, relate to God impersonally, in terms of these rules and principles, uh, you don't understand what God desires. Um, it's way easier. This is religious. This is religion. I tell you what to do, and then you do it. I hear from God what you should do, and then you don't think about it. You don't talk to God. You don't try to understand yourself. Just listen to the pastor. That is childish. You get what I'm saying? because you don't need to relate to God. And so what Paul's argument is, the law is an intermediary between God and his people. It was given through angels, it was given through Moses, it's not a direct connection. So let me give you one more example. Um, some of you youth are uh, what, Taylor Swifties, Swifties, whatever they call them. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you go to a Taylor Swift concert, best concert of your life, the day after, you message Taylor Swift on Instagram, you DM her, and you're like, hey, Tay-Tay, like, yeah, that was awesome, like, loved your concert, blah, blah, blah. And then 
Taylor Swift responds to you and she says, oh, thanks so much, I had a great time. And you're like, wow, I'm talking to Taylor Swift, right? Wrong. Because Taylor Swift is a multi-billion dollar business and she probably pays like dozens of social media managers to respond to all the comments of the Swifties to make them feel special on her behalf, right? And so there is an intermediary. You are not directly relating to Taylor Swift. You don't have her number and you can't text her whenever you want. You are relating to her through an intermediary. And in the same way, the law is an intermediary. It's much better to have a direct relationship with Taylor Swift than it is with her social media manager. And in the same way, what is the law? If you disconnect the law from God himself and you only relate to him in terms of Christian principles without any sort of interpersonal relationship, you're missing it. You're not relating to God. You're relating to the law. And you're going back into slavery. And so, honestly, this is where we get to this... Um, this is where we get to what it feels like and the experience of being a son. So let's keep going. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So God sent Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman. He was fully human. He was born under the law, which means he fully satisfied the law in a way that no other person could. For everyone else, the law brought knowledge of sin. For Jesus Christ, he knew the heart of the law. He knew God's heart so well that he never broke it. He never broke any law. Because you could sum up the law in saying, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so by doing that, by coming to this world, he redeemed those under the law. And let me unpack that real quick. The word for redemption is the word to purchase someone out of slavery. And so during this time, there is a system of indentured servitude. So if you owe someone money, uh, you couldn't pay them back, you would work for them and you would pay it off, right? Until they pay off the full amount through their work, they would be a servant. To redeem someone is to say, Peter, you're enslaved to your sister because you like, I don't know, like you stole her Taylor Swift tickets. And not that, you, you, I don't know. You sold her Taylor Swift tickets to buy a K-pop ticket instead, okay? And so you, are, you have to clean her room until you pay off the debt, right? But then Daniel over here says, you know what? I want to buy you out of slavery. I'm going to pay your sister $1,500 because that's how much Taylor Swift tickets cost so that you no longer are under that debt. That's what Jesus Christ is doing with for us. He's redeeming us out of slavery. And what's the slavery to? The law, right? That's what it says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be different. We might relate to God in a completely different way. We relate to God as adopted children, where because of what Jesus did, this is God's plan all along. He looks at us and he says, you are enslaved to the law. You are enslaved to the gods that you worship. We're going to see that in the next passage. And, and rather than saying, I'm going to stand at arm's length and just let you destroy yourself, let you be enslaved, he says, I want to rescue you. I want to love you. I have compassion for you. And I have so much joy and love. I abound in love. And I want to bring people into my family. Um, the example I always use for this is uh, the Fong house. So Peter Fong, our former pastor, my best friend, uh, his, name is, his name is Samuel Fong, he was Peter's son. And when I was growing up, my family was like, we had, we had issues, right? We had, a, we had a decent number of issues. I had a tough relationship with my parents. Um, not terrible, but also not great. And the Fong house was so much fun. Uh, the Fongs had four kids, and then they adopted Emma, and their house was like always a party. I'm serious. Like when I went to the Fong house, uh, number one, I could drink all the soda I wanted. They always had junk food. I stayed up way too late playing video games. Many, many times I would sl sleep over and I literally did not sleep. What kind of a sleepover is that? I didn't sleep. I just played video games all night. It was so much fun and they were so joyful. They fought like crazy with each other, but you could tell they loved each other. And they played cards, they played board games, we played sports, 
We had such a great time. And so um, often, youth group was on Friday, church on Sunday. I would go to the Fong house on Friday night, and I would sleep over Friday night and Saturday night until church, and we'd have Taco Bell for lunch. And it was the best. Seriously, it was the best. But what I want you to notice is their family had so much joy that they were reaching out to other people and saying, come in, come in, come in. And so whenever Peter's been a pastor, one thing that you realize is he is always bringing people to his house. And I mean, honestly, I would say it's his wife, Jean, more than him, because um, he's like antisocial and stuff. But, and she's, uh, he's funny, she's fun. You know the difference? He makes you laugh, she makes you have fun with her. And so um, they always bring people over. You know, they bring people over for 4th of July, watch fireworks. She cooks food for people. Um, she plays cards with people. There's so much laughter and joy in their house. And that's what God is like. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, they so love each other, and they have so much joy in their community and relationship with each other. God is one, God is three persons, confusing, I know. But they have so much joy that, that it abounds, it flows out, it spills out everywhere, and they want to bring people into their family. And so he says this, God sent Jesus, God loves you so much that he sent Jesus so that we might receive adoption. And if you don't understand how adoption is a gift, and if you think that your Christianity is mostly in terms of what you do, you're missing it. Do you see how it says receive? Do you earn your adoption? Do you get your adoption by being a really good Christian? No, you receive it. God's activity, he goes first. He sent Jesus to die for you so that he could what? Um, not, no longer be mad at you, forgive you of your sins. Those things are true. But the purpose is so that he could bring you into his family and treat you as a child, as a son. And that's so incredibly beautiful. We might receive adoption as sons. And not only this, what else? So that's the status. We have this incredible resource. Let me talk for a second about how to use this. Um, how do you respond to when you don't feel God? When you don't feel it? When you don't feel like God loves you? Let me, think, let me ask you this. When you're adopted into a family, or for those of you who, you know, like, you, you are part of your family, right? You have a birth certificate with your parents, and they are your, they are your parents. They're your legal guardians. Does how you feel about whether they are your parents determine whether or not they're your parents? You get what I'm asking? No. What determines it is the status. Because I have a kid, and if every time Toby got mad at us, and felt like we weren't his parents because we weren't giving him what he wanted, then we would basically become his parents and then unbecome his parents a thousand times a day. Because a thousand times a day, I have to like make him unhappy by not letting him you know, stab his eye out with a whatever. Um, I'm serious, right? And then even when you're older <laughs> and you fight with your parents, does that change your status? If you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your status is unbroken no matter what you do. There's a paper somewhere that says, Grace, you are a child of God, no matter how you feel or what you do. I'm, I'm, there, I don't know if there's, but that's how sure it is. That's how solid it is. And so we can actually use that. Where if you're extremely emotional, um, one thing that God does, and this is what the Puritans said, um, one thing that God will do is God will wean you off spiritual experiences so that you can love him for himself. Let me explain that. Uh, he weans you off spiritual experiences. When you relate to God when you're young, in youth group, etc., you are very dependent on God making you feel good and feel differently, right? So you go to youth retreat, and you have like a great time, you know, singing all that stuff. It's so awesome. It's so amazing. Um, and God does that because he really wants you to experience his love and to enjoy him. But over time, you begin to realize our feelings change all the time. If you're married, if you're a parent, if you've ever experienced a long-lasting relationship, you realize your feelings change for whatever reason. And C.S. Lewis talks about the law of undulation where he says, 
You know, you wake up in the morning, you're feeling on top of the world. You know, you just went to the Taylor Swift concert, you're on cloud nine, and then you have lunch, and it disagrees with you, and then all of a sudden you're like, my life is the worst, I hate this. You know, like, God hates me, and everyone hates me, and this is terrible, right? Are you, are you self-aware enough to realize how changeable your moods are? And so the status of adoption is actually incredibly good news. The way God feels about you and the way God sees you will never change, even when your feelings change. And so what I would say very practically is if you don't feel that God loves you and that he is not like relating to you the way you would want a parent to relate to you, if you're the type of person who is extremely like all over the place, there's a lot of things you can do. Number one, you probably are relating to God in terms of the law where you think that he's judging you based on your performance. Um, but the other thing I would say is uh, preach to yourself and meditate and remind yourself what the truth is. Remember that your adoption is based on what Jesus did, not based on anything you do. And it's an objective fact outside of your feelings, right? Do you kind of get what I'm saying? It's true regardless of whether you feel it or not. For example, it's cloudy outside. Is the sun shining? No. It feels like the sun's not shining, but go behind the clouds, is the sun still there? Yeah, right? That's what our feelings are like. We might not feel that the sun is there, but we know the sun is there no matter how we feel. God's love for us, it's still there, even when we can't feel it. And so you have to believe the truth, trust the truth, name it and claim it, that's what people call it, where it's like you believe what is true regardless of how you feel. But there's even more. And this is something that's absolutely been life-changing for me. Um, this is how good of a parent God is. Let me read you another J.I. Packer quote. If God in love has made Christians his children, and if he is perfect as a father, two things would seem to follow. J.I. Packer is very logical. Um, first, the family relationship must be an abiding one lasting forever. Perfect parents do not cast off their children, right? A perfect parent will not reject or disown their children, child when they do something that they disagree with. The, the tragedy is, in this world, plenty of parents will do that. They will explicitly do it, or they will do it based on like ignoring them until they meet their demands. But that's not what God is like. Christians may act the prodigal, but God will not cease to act the prodigal's father. But this, listen to the second one. Second, God will go out of his way to make his children feel his love from them and know their privilege and security as members of his family. And I, I love this line. Adopted children need assurance that they belong, and a perfect parent will not withhold it. Look at this next section. Because you are children, because you are sons, and the reason he uses the word sons, not sons and daughters, is because, again, only males could inherit the estate in this time. So it, this is actually extremely radical. He's saying to women who don't have that dignity or don't have the ability to own property, in God's eyes, you have so much dignity that I'm going to treat you as a Roman son who can have all of the privileges and rights of adoption. If you are a son, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And this is one of the most incredible passages. There's so much here. Um, number one, if God is truly your father, and if he is bringing you into his family, not only do you have an unshakable status, but God cares so much about your experience of him and how you feel towards him. And so I am an emotional person. And over the course of my life, I have been dependent on spiritual experiences. And so when I, when I share about my spiritual experiences, um, sometimes I think it's good to realize it's possible for God to do these things, but this is not necessarily the norm. Um, at the same time, this passage is saying, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so what is this saying? God sent the spirit into us so that the spirit inside of us can cry out, and, and this word is extremely powerful. It's like to shout, to scream, to cry out, Abba, Father. And in Romans 8, 
Paul says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does this mean? It means that the pressure is not on you alone to always feel like God loves you. The Spirit works in your heart to convince you and remind you and give you an experience of God's love for you. And honestly, I have come to trust God deeply because over the many, many times where I felt an absence of God in my life, time after time, he comes through and reminds me and gives me this experience um, to reassure me. Now, even when I say that, I still want to qualify it by saying, don't depend on that. If you are only depending on that, you will not grow. Instead, when your feelings are not coming through for you, use it as an opportunity to shore up your foundation of intellect where you think about the truth of God. When your feelings aren't, don't feel real, is God true? Is he real regardless of whether you feel it or not? So think through the intellectual arguments. Meditate on the scripture. Preach to yourself. Say to yourself, even though I don't feel this, is it true? If it's true, if Jesus died on the cross, then I am a child of God and I can live on that resource while I wait for God to change my feelings. But then this is something that we should long for. This is something that I pray for, where I'm like, God, you are my father, and I go to him and I pray like this. God, you say that you care how I feel about you. Right now I'm really struggling, and I could use you to encourage me in a special way, to get me through this suffering. I just want a hug. I'm serious. I just want a, a kiss. I just want something to help me feel in this moment where I desperately need you. And so I've used a lot of examples of this. One of my favorite ones is the bald eagle incident where um, I really love to go to the Baylands in East Palo Alto. It's like an estuary. There are all kinds of birds. There's water. It's a great hiking area. And I like loved um, birds of prey when I was in elementary school. My favorite bird was the peregrine falcon. Peregrine falcon, fastest diving bird, could go like 200 miles an hour. But I also thought bald eagles were incredible because they're so majestic, they're huge. And so I was walking in the Baylands, and I looked up in the sky, and there was a huge bird up there that basically had black feathers and a white head, white plumage on its head. And I'm like, is that a bald eagle? There's no way, because they're endangered, and like, why would there be a bald eagle here? And then I walked over, and I got closer. And you know what? It was a bald eagle. What was happening was there were two people who must have been part of some kind of like zoo or wildlife preserve, and they had like the falconer's glove on, and they were basically letting the eagle go for a walk, right? Like letting the eagle go out into an open area and fly. And so the eagle would fly up into the sky, and then the other trainer would call it back, and then it would land on their person's arm. And when I, when I saw that, I'm like, God, thank you. Because that is something so particular to who I am, and you showed me that to make me remember how much you love me. It's like a special gift from God to you to get you through a difficult time. But I'm different than you. So what I really believe, based on this passage, is that the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, will be reminding you of God's love for you if you are attentive enough to recognize it. What I mean by that is oftentimes we don't recognize all the ways God is encouraging us. One example, this, I get this all the time, it's like, I, I get complaints from people, they're like, God, God never like helps me with anything, blah, 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 you know, like I don't hear anything from God, and and then at the same time, they're like, I love talking to my friends, and I feel so encouraged when they pray for me. And I'm like, wait. So you're saying that God sent other Christians to pray for you and encourage you and speak the truth to you when you need it, but God is not helping you. You see, there's like, there's like a miss. It's not that God isn't helping you. It's that you're not recognizing the ways that God is so present and involved in your life. Um. And so this really changes everything because as Christians, like as people who don't know who God is, I, I am not interested in changing your behavior 
Because I believe God is the one who changes your hearts and then your life changes out of a response to him, out of gratitude. And so I don't care. I'm not, my, my, my job is not to change your behavior so that God will accept you. My job is to show you who God is so that you can trust him and ask him for help when it comes to these areas in your life that you feel like you can't control. Your addictions, your anger issues, whatever struggles you have. If you know who God is, if you turn to him and say, God, can you help me? I'm your child, can you help me? God will respond in incredible ways. Do you see how this is different than law? Do you see how this is direct relationship? It's not through a social media manager. I'm not God's social media manager. You can talk directly to God. And then God is so incredibly gracious. This totally changes the gospel, the way you see it. God loves you so much, he wants to bring you into his family and the joy and peace that comes from it. And so if you're miserable as a Christian, you're not doing God any favors. What he wants you to do is to remember his grace and his love and his joy and experience this incredible relationship with God as your father. And then out of that, when you join his family, when you're at his house enjoying and delighting him and his love for you, then you'll be like, come in, come in. Do you want to come and meet this incredible person I know, this loving father? Do you want to be adopted into the family? He is so powerful and good and loving that there is always room for one more. And that's what evangelism is. It's bringing people into joy. And so if your life is not characterized by joy, stop evangelizing, honestly, because you're not doing God any favors. You're giving people a false impression of who God is. <laughs> Should I say that? Is that blasphemy? I don't know. Um, but you're not doing God any favors um, if, you, if you are saying you should come into this religious system that's characterized by rules and limitations and, and, and um, pressure, basically. This is how much God loves you. Uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I pray you would grow us, that we would be able to walk based on faith in your promise and your truth in moments where our feelings are dysfunctional and fail us. And then I pray that you would lift our heads when we're at our low, low points, um, that we would experience your grace and your fatherly affection for us in the moments we need it most so that we'd be encouraged and you would give us strength to persevere. Holy Spirit, um, I pray that by your grace, because of what God, um, because of God's love that he gave you to us, um, you would cry out in our hearts, reminding us how we are adopted children, how you don't relate to us on the basis of performance and evaluation, but based on your love and grace. And then I pray that would transform our obedience um, we would have a new motivation um, of joy and gratitude, and we would delight in your heart, and that would make us change and live differently. Um, so I pray you would change us um, by your spirit and change us by having a new understanding of who you are as our Father. We need you desperately to do that. Um, only you can change our hearts in this way. Only you can illuminate the truth about who you are so that we can be different. So we pray you would do that, and that would give us an incredible joy and heart for people who don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen.